glad to have you all here today. Um, I'll start off with a caution that I hope I don't have to say many more times, but all that stuff the trip told you up here, don't believe it, all right? You know, you hate to have to tell somebody, don't trust a pastor because he's a liar, and I won't go that far. I'll just say that he wasn't telling the truth, so amen. Well, yeah, glad to be here in the house of the Lord today. Uh, glad to look out at uh, all of y'all um, and just be reminded of what an awesome God that we serve, the fact that he would yeah, create us all and make us so unique. Um, and the most important things about us is not what makes us unique, but it's what we have in common. And that is that we've all been made in the image of God. So let's pray and rejoice in this great God and then go to his word. Let's pray. Yeah. Um, Father, you've been so good to us. Uh, Lord, and I think your goodness to us can be wrapped up in the phrase that uh, we haven't gotten what we've deserved. Lord, in a bad sense, you've saved us from judgment that we deserve that should have been ours. And in a good sense, Lord, you have provided us with so much more than we deserve with, with friends and family and provision and all of the things that we take for granted, but above all else, God, uh, you've endowed each and every one of us with the capacity to be able to relate to you. I pray that that wouldn't be something that we take for granted, but as we look in your word today, that we would be reminded of how good that you've been to us, Father, and your goodness would lead those of us that have been straying from you to repent and to turn back and I pray that your goodness would lead those of us that have continued to pursue you, to pursue you all the more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, the week before Father's Day of, I think it was 2013, uh, I read a newspaper article about this guy in Florida. And what took place was uh, this guy, his wife was getting ready to have their fifth child. Um, and so he thought that he would do something nice for her and just offload stuff at the house. So she's in the hospital getting ready to have her fifth kid, um, and he has this garage sale. So a guy comes up to him and asks him, how much for this box? It was an old ring box. And he's like, $10. Sells the ring box for $10. Goes, sees his fifth child born, and looks down at his wife's hand. And he asks himself, and he asks her, where's your $22,000 wedding ring? She says, well, my fingers were swollen, so I put it in the old ring box that we had. <laughs> and what takes place is you have a guy that has drastically underestimated the value of something, squandered it, and let it go. Now, most of my friends got married really young, so I know none of y'all have $22,000 wedding rings. But what I do know is that we've all made that same mistake from time to time, right? We've all drastically underestimated the value of something and ended up squandering it and letting it go only to sit back and to be frustrated to sit back and to say, I wish that I would have spent the time and really knew what it was that I had before I let it go. And so what we want to do and take these next three weeks on is we want to talk about 
the immense value of humanity. We're going to talk about what it means to be human and how it's something that I think most of us underestimate. And I think we underestimate it because this, because we think that we know so much more about it than we actually do. Because we live at a time in the world where we know more about how people work on the inside than at any other time in the world. So this past week, um, one of our friends got a lung transplant. Like, they took out his lungs and gave him new ones. That's amazing. And I think that in the world that we live in, since we've come so far and we know so much, we don't really think about uh, just how little we know, not about how people work, but why they are, why they're here. There's a guy, um, H.D. McDonald, that says this, no age knows so much and so many things about man as does ours. And yet no age knows less than ours what man is. Having lost an awareness of God, modern man has set his sights on human existence as the one worthy object of his concern. It is, however, precisely because of this loss of God awareness that present day man is less sure of who he is and why. We live in a world that knows so much about how men work, but when it comes to the basic questions of why we exist, it's a thing that most of us can't really sit and answer. The meaning of life turns into this large and lofty conversation that we don't feel like we can speak on in, in, in a very, very real way. Here's what makes that hard is because as we think of our humanity, you and I all know that something's broken. We know that something is wrong. This political circus that we've been involved in for these past few months has been a group of people trying to convince us that they know what's wrong with us and how to fix it. And if we take it a step deeper, we find out that when we start to talk about humanity and who we are and how to fix things, we normally tend to start off with what's wrong, right? A kid uh, falls down and cries and they stand up and they run to you crying, the very first thing that you ask is, what's wrong? Tell me what hurts. And I think that when it comes to our humanity, both you and I, we have a terrible habit of constantly starting with our deficiencies. We tend to start with what's wrong with us and we have a keen awareness of things that are wrong with us. And that keen awareness turns into this soul awareness where we focus all the time on the things that are wrong with us. So much so that, that, that this. If you have a group of folks and you take a group picture of them, what's the one thing that you don't do if they ask you, yo, is it okay? You don't tell them that it's not. You lie and say, yeah, 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 it's fine. Because you know, if you pass around that group picture, everybody's going to look for themselves, try to see what's wrong with them, and then ask you to retake it. Right? We kind of live in this world, and when we think about our humanity, we constantly think 
of what's wrong with us. Because if we think that we can just find out what's wrong with us, then we know how to fix it and we can make things better. And this quest for dignity comes in us trying so hard to fix our faults and our flaws or to hide our faults and our flaws. And I think that we start here because we assume that we know what's good for us. We assume that we know what should be. And this familiarity with this concept of humanity brings this contempt. This familiarity makes us confuse awareness with comprehension. So much so that if I were to sit here in this room and I were to say, hey, whose image are we made in? The whole room would say God. But if I were to say, what does that mean? We'd probably get crickets. We have a bunch of different responses. People aren't really sure And that's dangerous because the quickest pathway to squandering something is to not have a proper assessment of what you have and proceed to make actions, proceed to work towards things that you think might bring you profit. It's just like the man that was quick to sell this ring box for $10 and had no clue that there was a priceless treasure inside. And we see that in the world that we live in. We see girls forfeiting their dignity for Instagram likes. We see the powerful disregarding the dignity of the powerless for profit, for money, for advantage. We see ordinary people like you and I disregarding the dignity of people that are outside that are in need for the sake of our convenience. It's so easy for us to squander an amazing treasure if we don't know what we have. So what we want to do today and for the next three weeks is just spend time and unpack what does it mean to be created in the image of God and why is it so important? So if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't know where it is, it's on page 1 of your Bible. That one never gets old. I've used it like 80 times. Never gets old. Here's one point that I want to make as we start and that I hope will lead us through these next three weeks, and that's this. It's only a high view of God that's going to give you a right view of man. It's only a high view of God that that will give you a right view of man. We live in a world that's consumed with humanity and trying to advance our race. We live in a world that's been consumed with fighting for the dignity of man, from abolition to abortion, from prejudice to beliefs, brutality constantly. People are fighting for the dignity of mankind. However, we're only going to get to a right view of man if we first look and have this high view of God. And the way that we're going to start is we're going to go to the Bible. And as we go to the Bible, we want to be reminded, and we've said it time and again, but we go to the Bible, and the Bible is more of a window to see 
who God is than it is a mirror to look at who we are. The Bible is meant to give us a picture and insight so that we can see God clearly. And in seeing God clearly, we get a clearer picture of who we are and what we're like and what we're made for. And so with a group of people that when they think of themselves tend to start with their deficiencies, I want to give you a piece of good news. And that piece of good news is this. When the Bible talks about man, the Bible doesn't begin with your deficiencies. It begins with your dignity. The Bible starts with dignity, not deficiency. We see this God that was all by himself, that had no need of anybody else, He creates, not because anybody coerced him to, but because God wanted to create and to reveal himself. And in the creation of the world, as we look at man and kind of zoom our our eyes in on how God makes man, we see that man's set apart. Man is set apart by God first and foremost because man is the crown of God's creation. He's the very last thing that God creates. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, it starts off and it says this, And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And if you've ever read Genesis chapter 1, the first 25 verses are pretty amazing, but they're kind of boring because it's, it's like said in the same way. And God said, let there be light. And then he creates the seas the same way. And then he creates land the same way. Then he creates the suns and the stars. And then he creates the fish and the birds. And then he makes the animals that live on the land. And, and, and so if you're not careful, it can kind of just lull you to sleep because you'll, you'll see the, the same thing in verse 6. And God said, or what, verse 9, and God said, verse... Uh, 11, and God said, 14, and God said, 20, and God said, 24, and God said. But then when it gets to man, the words change. And the very first thing that we see is man is set apart by God. Verse 26 says this, then God said. And it changes. It seems like with the rest of creation that God's just speaking, 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 and it takes place. But then when it talks about how man is created, it's like he pauses and he takes his time and he says, I want you all to know I'm creating something special. Man is the crown of God's creation, the last thing that he makes. In the same way that a parent would take their time and set up a whole room Before their kid is born, this is what God does. So it's not just that God makes all of these things and then God makes man. It's that God makes all of these things for man. This is his room. This is your crib. This is your house. To show us from the outset that if God is that concerned of providing for our needs before we're there, why do we think that when we're here, God is any less concerned? From the outset, we've been set apart by God. He's provided us with this sense of dignity and all the things 
that he's given to man. Genesis 2, 7 says this. This kind of expands what takes place, and it says this. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Man is not just the crown, but God takes his time. And not only does God take his time, Genesis 1 gives you a picture of a transcendent, powerful God that speaks and things take place. Genesis 2 gives you a picture of an imminent God, God with us close up. A God that is so concerned with man that the picture that he gives is that this God, this great king, is stooping down into the dirt, getting his hands and his knees dirty putting his mouth up to men's nose and breathing within him this breath of life. God takes his time and God comes up close. And being created from the dirt, I hope that it makes very, very clear to us that God is not scared or put off by your dirt. God is not surprised by the things that you feel like in your life are just worthless or dirty. This great God who can create by just speaking a word at a distance chooses to make mention of the fact that he came up close. We see it's ordinary dust and the thing that sets it apart is God's relationship to I hope for those of y'all in here that maybe have come in here and just felt worthless or felt like you had no value or felt like everything in you is just wrong with you. I hope that you read this and are reminded that God is not looking for people that are already put together and clean and crisp in order to give them dignity God gives dignity to man, and it makes mention that he was created of the dust of the earth so that anybody that comes in and feels worthless and I don't know what God could do with what I have, God made a man out of dust. God can do a whole lot with what you have. There's an amazing sense of dignity and worth. Man has been set apart by God. Man's been set apart because... He's like God. God made him like him. The very first time that we see the words not good in the Bible come long before man sins. It comes when man is isolated and by himself. And so do you know what God does? God makes him somebody else to show that we were always meant and created for relationship. Part of being human is being part of a group of people. Like God himself, when God steps back to create man, he sits back and says, let us. God talks to himself. We were always meant to be known in community. My my wife's grandmother was from this place called Wisner, Louisiana. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right? We don't know where it is. In that town, 
there is one stoplight and a piggly wiggly. That's what they have in the town. So the very first time that we, we go there, um, you know, I go down, and the very first question that they asked me was not, what do you do for a living? Was not, what are your goals and dreams and aspirations for your life? The very first question that they asked me was, whose people are you? Right? Who are you, a part, who are you relationally connected to? That if I know that, then I can get a sense of who you are. We were made for community. Our identity was never meant to be found in isolation. Adam had a perfect, unhindered relationship with God, and God looks down and says, this is not good. That if you're going to be like me, you've got to have somebody else. He's like him in his relational co- co- uh, connection. Genesis 1, 26 says this, Let us make man in our Im- Im- image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God didn't just make them for relationship, but God made them to rule. He gave them a domain, things to do, things to to serve, people to serve, people to give to. So as God creates them and endows them with intellect and wisdom and all of that, he makes them to use all of those things to serve outward, to give. They aren't primarily to be consumers. God has provided for all of their needs, and he makes them to work and to to serve, which is huge because this, listen, work as created by God is a reflection of the dignity that we already have. It's not a rubric meant to determine how much dignity that somebody does have. So it's not tell me your job and tell me what you do and I'll tell you your worth. It's no, 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 no. You've been endowed by God with an amazing sense of dignity. Therefore, use that to work and to serve some, some, uh, somebody else. Be like God in that. It's not just that we've been set apart by God or set apart because we're like God. Ultimately, We've been set apart for God himself. St. Augustine says this, God has formed us for himself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. Genesis 1, you take a survey and what you'll find out is from verse 1 to 25, it seems as if God's primary concern is just with compliance. It's just with creation doing what he asked it to do. Let there be light, light's there, it's good. Water's there, it's good. And you see this picture of God being this absolute sovereign and ruler that is being used to being obeyed instantaneously and absolutely. But then when he gets to man, something different takes place. God doesn't just speak at man. 
God takes time and God speaks to and with me. The rest of creation was created for compliance, to comply, to do what God says. But do you know what God made man for? For conversation. Verse 28 says this, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God says, Behold, I have provided for you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And each tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God made man for conversation. And then he goes a step further. And in that, what he does is he puts this distinction in between mankind and the rest of the beasts of the field. St. Augustine would go on to say this truth. He'd say, now, the uh, being created in God's likeness is more than the physical posture that we have, but his point was even our physical posture reveals something of God's intention for us. All the beasts of the field, or most of the beasts of the field, his point is they're crouched over. They're hunched over. They walk on all fours with their eyes on the ground so that they would constantly be reminded that their destiny, that their hope, that all their joy is going to be found here on the ground. But what he says is that but God made man upright, to stand upright, so that he would constantly be reminded that joy is never meant to be found under the sun, but joy is meant to be found beyond it. Man was made for something much greater than what we see right here. When the Bible starts off, it doesn't start off with what's wrong with us. It starts off with what's right with us, this great dignity that we have. And to be made in the image of God, there's a bunch of folks that have worded it in a bunch of ways, but it's simply this. The thing that all of us share is this, the capacity to relate to God and to reflect him in this world to others. This capacity that we have to relate to God and to reflect him in this world to others. And we find our dignity and our worth doesn't come primarily in what we do or what we're made of, but who it is that we're connected to and who it is that made us. A few years ago, Kanye West uh, went on tour um, and uh, somebody before eBay shut them down was about to get pretty rich. So on eBay, they posted a plastic bag that was closed. 
And on the bag was written, air from Kanye's concert. Kanye's air. Do you know how much the bids got up to before eBay shut it down? $60,000. I have air. I've got a ton in loans. I can try to get the same value for my air, but what I have to come to grips with is most of the world really doesn't put that high of a price on my air. Kanye would get that. It, it was worth that much, not just because it's air, but it's Kanye's air. His shoes, great shoes, but at the end of the day, it's, it's leather, plastic, and cotton. All right, amen. <laughs> I've got a friend that's a part of this church that got a hold of a pair of his shoes and sold it for thousands of dollars. Thousands. I could make those exact same shoes. People aren't going to put the same price on it because who am I, right? But that's Kanye's shoes. The air, the leather, the plastic, the whatever holds a great value, not because of what it is or what it does, but because of who it's connected to. And this is the message that the Bible wants us to see from the outset. There is an, a priceless treasure in all of us. And it's not about what you do. It's not about how far you've come. It's not about the accomplishments that you had. It's because of, of whose you are. The Imago Day is something that is more fundamental inside of you than the job that you hold. The Imago Day is something that is more fixed inside of you. It doesn't fluctuate with your last bad decision or your last bad choice. This is something that God has instilled in all of us. And so as Christians, as those that constantly want to point people back to God, here's one thing that it does. It should change the way that we start every conversation, particularly conversations about the gospel and what God has done. In college, when I first learned how to share my faith, I had a booklet and it told me, all right, hey, here's what you need to know. God's holy. Man is sinful. Christ paid for our sins. You respond and you'll have life. Amen. All of those things are true. One of them is just woefully incomplete. If the first thing that we say about man, when we talk about man, is what's wrong with him, then we haven't started where the Bible starts off. John Calvin would say that when it comes to trying to talk about the great work that God has done, his thing is, I want to lift folks up so high so that when I talk about sin, they know the heights that they've fallen from and they long to get back what they lost. What would that look like in a context like ours that's devoid of dignity and people 
believing everything that they hear out there about the way to get dignity. What would it look like for us to come and to lead in and to talk and to say, wait a minute, look at this, look at who you are, look at God's original intent and design and creation for you. God has made you distinct from everything else that he made. God made you to be his. God's not off-put primarily by what's wrong with you. God is off-put with that, but that's not all he sees. God sees people that have been made in his image. Deficiencies should never start or be the start of our conversations because the Bible doesn't start there. While the Bible doesn't start with what's wrong with us, God's not silent about what's wrong with us. But here's what takes place. Dignity, it helps to explain what it is that's really wrong with us. You are not going to rightly understand your deficiencies or sin if you don't grasp the dignity with which you've been created. So it's important not just to lift folks up. It's important so that when we really talk about what's wrong with us, we really get down to the root of it all. We see the depths of it and we we see how it is that we're made right. The very first thing that we do want to see is this, is that there is something wrong. And what takes place is even in light of the dignity that God has created man with, and provided him with, God made man to relate to him and to reflect him in the world, we see that relationship with God has been spurned. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is filled with man being completely consumed with maintaining relationship with God. Genesis 3 and 4 is consumed with man trying to remove God or to get him out of the picture. This dignity, it's not that it's lost as we sin. Adam and Eve had this great treasure from God, and they spurned it, much like we do, much like we've prayed through all through the course of the day, hearing that our value comes from being God's, and yet and still we disregard that and try to pursue value and dignity and worse through the eyes of our spouse, through the job that we have, through the things that we get, through, uh, uh, through, uh, uh, through achievement and accomplishments. And all that we do when we say all of those things is we say to this God, God, there are things that are here under the sun that are worth more than you are. There are things here that I value to give me dignity more than you have. And this is what goes on to the point where in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, four chapters removed from God creating mankind. When it talks about man, it says this, now man only thought of evil 
continually. Completely disregarding what God has done. The amazing thing is, even though we're broken, God doesn't discard us. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. I'm going to jump around here for a bit. I just want to read this to you. After God floods the earth, starts from scratch with a new family, God gives mankind this word. Even though our dignity, we've spurned it, we don't deserve God's grace, even in the midst of this all, God chooses to preserve his image in us. And he doesn't just preserve it, he protects it. Genesis 9, 6 says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And the reason why he gives this, the reason why God offers this protection of mankind is that he says this, for God made man in his own image. Uh, Theologian says this, men are unworthy of God's care if we take into account what we've done. But since we bear the image of God, he links himself with us. Although we have nothing of our own by which to obtain the favor of God, he looks down at us and he sees his own gifts in us. And thereby he is excited to love and to care for us. No one can injure his brother without wounding God himself. If this was deeply fixed in our minds, we should be much more reluctant than we are to inflict injuries with our words and our actions. God values it so much that even in the midst of all of our sin, he protects it and he preserves it in us. And here's how you know just how twisted and how messed up that we are. You know, you look at the course of the past few months, and I remember Cecil, the gorilla who had a baby in the zoo, they shot and killed the gorilla to preserve the life of the baby. And what takes place is certain people are outraged. Right? Not saying that, that there's not room for that. We do want to protect the life of creatures that God has entrusted to us. But here's where the concern takes place. You have some of the same people that are outraged saying, there's a bunch of things that we could have done to prevent the gorilla from being killed to witnessing the same amount of footage of police shootings of men and justifying it. And what we're saying is we're not trying to make a judgment and say that it's right or wrong, but one is met with compassion and there must have been some stuff that we could do. And one is met with, well, he must have done wrong. And that compassion just doesn't coincide with the fact that we've been created with a sense of 
dignity and worth. God chooses to protect that. God chooses to preserve it, even in the midst of all of what we've done wrong. And so at the end of the day, what we see is this. Our deficiencies are actually a distortion of the dignity that God has provided us with. What I mean is this. There's a reason why nobody in here gets frustrated at the fact that your pet dog at home is not monogamous. Why is that? Because he's just an animal. There's, there's not much dignity and worth. His perp, he's created to, to make me feel special when I come home. I don't care what he does with the breath in his lungs. But the reason why sin is what it is in our lives is because God created us with dignity. He created us to use the intellect, the power, the creativity to reflect him in this world. Our deficiencies, the things that are wrong with us, it's not just that we break rules. It's that we break relationships. We take this amazing tool that God has provided to us. We spurn it. Instead of being outward focused, givers like God himself was, we spend our time consuming, living as if our joy is to be found here in this world. One of the clearest ways to look at what it is you think your deficiencies are and how you hope that they'll be solved is go home, print out your bank statement, and look through what, 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 what you spend your resources on. It'll give you a picture of where your heart is, what it is that I feel like I lack, what it is that I feel like if I just have this, then I'll have what I have looked for my whole life. It gives us a picture of what it is that we think our deficiencies are. A theologian once said that man is both the glory and the garbage of the universe. That when we're connected to God and live in light of the dignity that we have, we see the great things that can be done. We see mankind using their creativity to write documents like the Emancipation Proclamation. And we see mankind using their great intellect and freedom to write things like for coloreds only. That in mankind, we see the great virtues and vices. Our greatest deficiency is this. 
is that we possess the image of God. But because of our sin, we're incapable of living in light of that reality. Instead of reflecting a picture that makes God look more and more attractive, we reflect a picture that makes people want to get as far away as they can from him because of our hypocrisy and sin and evil deeds. And thus what takes place is all this stuff that's been input inside of us turns out not to be this good gift, but a liability and a curse because it only does harm to those that God has placed in our pathway. And the worst part about it is that that corruption goes down to the very core of us. And as hard as we try, there's nothing that we can do to fix it. And the Bible is a record of people trying as hard as they can, but coming up short. The Bible doesn't start with what's wrong with us. It starts with the dignity that God has provided for us. But the Bible is not silent about what's wrong with us. It tells us how the dignity that we have has been distorted. But the beauty of what we get here in the text is that the Bible tells us the way for that dignity to be restored. And our dignity is only truly restored in Jesus. Graham Cole says this man is an enigma. He is a problem and his solution can only be found in God. Colossians 1.15 tells us this, that Jesus is the image of the perfect God. When we look at Jesus, often we're reminded of his deity and the fact that he's God. And that is true. God is invisible. The best things about him are beyond our ability to grasp. But the beauty of what Jesus did as he came here to this earth was he displayed God perfectly by fulfilling his humanity completely. Jesus shows us what God is like and even more fundamentally than that, Jesus shows us what it is to be human. So we don't look at him and think primarily this is somebody that merely came to come through and to save the day and to die on the cross for my sins. He did all of that, but he also came to live as an example. He came to show us what it was that God intended to do here in the world when he created Adam. He came to show us what God intended to do here in the world when he created and made us. In this world that we live in, it's full of things to lament or to be frustrated by. The beauty of what we see in Jesus is somebody who was pursued by the people that were on the top of the social food chain. But that didn't pump up his head. We see him constantly pursuing people that are that are at the bottom of the food chain. 
going so far as to stoop down and to talk with people that the rest of society casts off. Jesus shows us that God values those that have been created in his image so much that even the grossest of sins is not going to be the the determining factor that causes him to throw them away. When I was young, I had these favorite shirts that I wore into the ground, and I still do to some degree. Well, I wore them so so much, and I was so rough with all of them that they would get all these rips and tears. Now, my mom was a seamstress of sorts, so she would always kind of sew it back up and put it back together, and, and it was great. But the more and more that she sewed it up, the more and more that she repaired it, you know, the worse and worse the shirt looked. Until it came to a point where she's like, hey, this thing has been ripped so much, I'm not even sure that I can fix it. Here's what we need to do. Throw it away, and I'll buy you a new one. That's not what Jesus does. Here's the beauty of the restoration that we see in Christ. We tend to think that the worse and worse things that we've done, the worse and worse that we've sinned, the worse and worse that we've spurned God's greatness, that he repairs us and he'll fix us up. But the more and more that he'll fix us up, the worse and worse that we'll look. I mean, we're still put together, but I've been through so much that there's going to come a point where he wants to throw me away. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Here's the beauty of God is reflected not in garments with no holes in it, but garments with a bunch of holes and a bunch of patches so that somebody can look and say, man, that garment, that shirt has been through a bunch but somebody still salvaged it. Who is that somebody that could salvage a garment like that? I need to talk to to them. This is where the beauty of the gospel shines out through people that are broken. Not that folks would look to us and give us that praise, glory, and honor, but that folks would look to us and see that there is a God that can salvage the worst of us. There is a God that so long as there is repentance and faith in the life of somebody, he's never going to say enough is enough. That's too much. I can't forgive this one. That's not how it works. And when we live lives where we know that our aim is not to be praised by people, but to reflect the greatness of God in a way where people can look to us and praise him, do you know what takes place? We are woefully honest about our deficiencies. 
because we know that our deficiencies aren't the most important thing about us. We don't spend time hiding what's wrong with us, trying to be perceived as beautiful and perfect in the eyes of people because all that does is diminish the beauty of the God that we were meant to point to. No, no, no. What we do is we're honest about the ways that we've messed up. And we know that in this world that we live in, perfection is something that is always going to be beyond our grasp. You are never going to be perfect as long as you live here in this world. Sin will always have a very real presence in your life. But that's not meant to drive you to despair. It's meant to drive you to Jesus. It's meant to drive you to dependence on him. So that as you repent and experience that even the worst of sins doesn't keep you from relationship with God, doesn't keep you from experiencing and fleshing out the dignity that you've been created with. As you experience that, do you know what you get the privilege of doing? Reflecting that in a world where people are spending their time trying to hide their flaws and their faults because they think that dignity comes from that. It doesn't come from that. It comes from the same place that it originated from God himself. And this same God is willing and able and ready to offer forgiveness for any sin. Anything right now that you feel like I've done too much. I've gone too far. There's no way to to repair this. There is. But it's only found in Jesus, the finished work that he's done. His dying breath on the cross was meant to convince you of that truth. Forgiving the people that were actively murdering him with no intent in their eyes of ever owning up to what they did wrong. He's offering this forgiveness so that even if you're sitting here right now, and I'm not so naive to think that all of us that are in here are on the same page with God. There's those of us that are in here that did things last night that we said we would never do in our lives. There's those of us that are sitting here right now, and you may have plans to, after you leave here, to do something that you know that God has told you not to do, to do something that you know would be spurning the dignity that God has created you with and your intent on doing it right now and the goodness of what God has done in his word still hasn't swayed you, but I want you to know that Jesus is still making that offer. We see the depths of his forgiveness towards us. We see how deep his love goes. And at the same time, we get the perfect picture of God and a perfect picture of what God intended when he created humanity. Jesus gives us the high view of God that gives us the right view of man. And so as we close, I just want to read this one scripture for you and uh, give you a few brief uh, points of application. Second Corinthians 
Corinthians 3, verse 18 says this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. The very first thing that Paul talks about here is this. One, we we all have a need for transformation. Things are not as they should be. That's clear to us. The transformation does not come from you mustering up the strength inside of yourself. The answer to your problem is not inside of you. And you just need to look down deep and bring up what's inside of you. That couldn't be further from, from the truth. Paul says that, the, that all of this, this transformation that we hope to get, it's from the Lord. It's outside of us. And we're transformed to the degree that we have a high view of God and we constantly look at him. It's only a high view of God that gives us a right view of man. So what that means is this. In the midst of a world right now that is struggling to fight for human rights in the world around us, and we're drowned out by all these injustices that constantly come day in and day out, and it's enough to overwhelm us. In the midst of all of that, I want to emphasize to you the primacy of the spiritual life. The focus that you and I were created for relationship with God. If that is not first and foremost, you will lose steam in your fight for rights of mankind. We have to be reminded that it starts here. This is going to be the very fuel that carries us on. This is what lay at the heart of the civil rights movement, this Focus on man being created in the image of God with the dignity that lies there. Remember, we were created for God. And I say all of that just so that as we talk about all of these things, relationship with God is not viewed as an afterthought. It's not viewed as something that we have to get around to, but it's viewed as important and primary and If you're sitting here, the worst thing that you could do right now is to pretend that you have it if you know that you don't. The worst thing that you could do right now is to try to go back and to convince yourself in your mind that the relationship that you have with God is one that is actively transforming your life if that's not really the case. The beauty about being here is saying, no, no, listen, The answer is I need to look at Jesus in such a way where I'm reflective on the work that he did on the cross. I'm inspired. I'm encouraged. I'm drawn to him to run to him when I feel the most worthless. And if that's not where you are right now, then there's something inside of your heart. There's something inside of all of our hearts that convinces us that that's not the best thing that we could do with our time. Don't leave it there. Cry out to the Lord. Ask him to change those things that are in 
outside of you when we're done here. Don't be content with small talk. Find somebody else who you feel like is successfully bearing the image of God and tell them, this is where I'm at. What should I do? Don't try to deal with it in isolation. I want you to know that though we're not all mourning people, I I know that. The best thing that you can do to start your day is to look at Jesus. Whenever your day starts, however short it is, it doesn't have to be long, but the best thing that you can do to start your day is to go to God's word and to look at Jesus. I know that we're so concerned or scared at times with feeling as if statements like that are legalistic, and I don't want you to tell me when I have to read. It's not law. It's just advice from somebody that says the best thing that you can do is to do whatever you can, rid yourself of any distractions that you have to ensure that your day starts off with you looking at Jesus, seeing the ways that he reflected God's greatness, God's glory, God's forgiveness, and praying that God would transform you into that picture of what a human looks like. My prayer is that we don't get drowned out and discouraged with our deficiencies or the things that are wrong with us, but we would be reminded that we have been created for a purpose to reflect God. And if relationship is primary, then when we do the right things, we can rejoice in the fact that we get to display God fully. And when we do the wrong things, we don't have to stay in our, we we don't have to stay in our despair, but we can run to the person who we know is able to mend any tear. Let's pray. Uh, Father, um, you are so good to us. You've been gracious, kind, abundantly gracious and kind. Um, I pray that you wouldn't help us to think uh, so lightly of what you've done for us. Help us not to take for granted the fact that you made us to be able to relate to you, God. Lord, I pray that in our quest to do good here in this world, that we wouldn't seek to do it without the fuel that you provide, the fuel of a transformed life, the fuel of your spirit inside of us, the fuel of being able to rest at night knowing that we don't have to pay for our sins because Jesus already has. Help us to live as those that are eternally grateful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.